You're listening to The Good GP, the podcast for busy GPs. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Good GP, the educational podcast for busy GPs. I'm Christina and today I will be talking to Good GP guest, Associate Professor Anush Yazdani about endometriosis. Anush, welcome to The Good GP. Oh, welcome. Thank you very much for that. So just by way of a quick introduction, and I'm going to make it quick, Anush, because I think I could be here for the whole podcast (laughs) if I ran through all of your qualifications and um, achievements and what have you. So you are a gynecologist, though, with Eve Health and Queensland Fertility Group based here in my hometown of Brisbane, and you subspecialize in reproductive endocrinology and infertility and are an advanced reproductive endosurgeon with sort of a special interest in excisional endometriosis in amongst other surgeries as well. So really perfectly placed to have a chat to me today and I appreciate the time. I know you've had a very busy day in clinic. Thank you. Now, let's chat about endometriosis. I feel like, Anush, this is a condition that's really been sort of catapulted into the spotlight over recent years. Would you agree? Mm. I feel like, you know, I look back even to when I was at school, pre-medical, like I don't Mm. really remember this being something that was talked about a lot. Fast forward 20 years or so and this is actually a condition that's more well known about, I guess, in community yeah. and lay, the lay community. What do you think about that? I completely agree with you. I think we've finally seen the tide turn on endometriosis. And I think there are a couple of reasons for that. One of them is, love it or hate it, social media has changed a whole lot. of. I think the capacity for particularly young women who've really embraced social media and the new forms of communicating and talking to people mean that now you don't need to have a huge platform in order to be out there and say, hey, look, I'm having problems with my period. I'm having pain. I'm having a whole lot of issues. And thousands of other women log into the same space. And obviously, there's a connection. And so people now realize that, hey, this is not okay, that there are some problems here, particularly because in women who have endometriosis because it often runs in families and because pain is such a personal experience for them taking time off from school has been normal and often mum has had that because mum's had endometriosis as well their sisters have had that now all of a sudden there's this platform where lots of other people log in and they say well actually no I don't have that you shouldn't be having that either what is going on here the second thing of course is that we have been very very proactive and by we I mean the endometriosis community so the last 20 years have seen a massive change the world endometriosis society has done a sensational job to the point where we now classify endometriosis as a disease it's no longer just a condition and that has a whole lot of implications for it And in Australia, of course, we've now had the National National Plan for Endometriosis, which means that we've now have funding, there's research, there's a whole lot of stuff that's put behind this. So endometriosis is very much in the spotlight. And in fact, 2019 was the year where that came to the forefront and it's continuing into 2020. And for very important reasons, it has such massive personal and economic impacts that we really do need to keep an eye on this condition. Yeah, absolutely. And look, I couldn't agree with you more about those factors that you've mentioned and especially that real like patient advocacy space and Mm. social media, like you say, I think has allowed that. Mm. And I think it's great for women who 
have previously suffered in silence, so to speak, being told, oh, this is normal and this is just a part of being a woman and pain is normal, you know, and it's really giving them permission to say, actually, this isn't okay and I want to get help with this and to continue to seek that help, even if they're sometimes fobbed off the first or second time, which is unfortunate that sometimes that can still happen. So let's um, talk Mm. about some of the clinical aspects then. Let's talk about how endometriosis actually presents because it's not always the pain that's a common Mm. one but let's talk about some of the different ways it can present so i think endometriosis is the great mimicker in the 18th century it was syphilis that was the great mimicker now endometriosis is the great mimicker of a whole lot of things the typical triad of presentation is pain with periods pain with sex and infertility but many patients present with alternative sort of symptoms And so we now know from lots and lots of studies that, in fact, because our patients and women affected by endometriosis often have persistent pain, we see all of the elements creep in that patients with persistent pain have. So with it goes fatigue and tiredness, and that really features quite highly. Persistent pain of any type, in fact, may be seen. And so if you have a persistent abdominal pelvic pain that doesn't quite fit in, then you should be thinking about that. Sometimes it presents with migraines. And that's not necessarily because there's something cerebrally wrong. But as we talked about, not all women feel empowered to talk about problems in the genital area and their reproductive system. And so this may be their ticket of entry saying, look, I'm not okay. So if you're getting someone representing on a monthly basis or around the time of their periods, I think we need to all widen our conversations and maybe take some other people out of the room if they're coming with mum or with with other support people who may not be there so much as support but maybe chaperoning and so it's important to give women then the opportunity to talk about other issues that may be there and of course bowel and urinary disturbances are really 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 frequent in that group and they're not necessarily because endometriosis sits on the bowel but because all the prostaglandins and the changes that occur around the time of periods are much more exaggerated in women with endometriosis. So we do see that. There is, of course, an association with menstrual disturbances. And one of my bosses used to say, look, if you have someone who's got breakthrough bleeding on the oral contraceptive pill, you should always think of endometriosis. And while that association is not quite true, like it often is when your boss tells you something, there is actually a grain of truth in this. And the reason for that is that women with endometriosis have altered receptivity of the utopic endometrium, so the endometrium inside of the uterus, to hormones like progesterone, which is a cause of a whole lot of problems that they have. So if you do have women with menstrual dysfunction, it's not just the endometrium that may be affected, but it may also be a sign of endometriosis. Now, unfortunately, of course, removing endometriosis does not alter the menstrual pattern, but it certainly you should think about it if you have someone who has disturbed periods. That's great to know and very thorough. And I wanted to hone in, though, in one of those aspects. You know, you mentioned about urinary symptoms, bowel symptoms, you know, some of these other things that can occur with endometriosis. As a GP, thinking about patients that are coming in potentially with some of these symptoms, is it only if a woman is having these symptoms around the time of a period that I would really be thinking endometriosis? Mm. Or should we be considering it even if it's not necessarily cyclical? You know, Mm. does endometriosis always have to be cyclical, essentially, is what I'm asking. No, it it does not. You're absolutely right. I, I think there are two elements of this. Sometimes 
endometriosis produces non-cyclical pain, particularly continuous pain, but again, pain with intercourse is one of those sort of things that should always set you off. Those are the critical, that triad is really the important one. But if you have persistent abdominal pelvic pain, that may not be directly related to anything that you can consider or you can think of. As long as the thought process of endometriosis goes through there, I think that's really, really important. The corollary, of course, is that lots and lots of pain in young women that may be catamenal or that may be cyclical is in fact not endometriosis. It's due to a whole lot of other causes of pain and of which endometriosis is only one of them. And it's one that we hone in on because we have the capacity to alter a woman's life by addressing this and having an earlier intervention. But of course, there are lots and lots of other reasons, uh, causes of pain. Yeah, okay, so that's really helpful and good for us, I guess, as GPs to know not to just think about those typical symptoms, but sort of thinking outside the the Mm. box a little bit when there's maybe other symptoms that are just not quite adding up to some of the other differentials that you might be considering. Correct. So let's talk about investigations then. What should a GP start with, I guess? You know, a patient comes in thinking maybe down the line of endometriosis, what should we be starting off with in terms of potentially, are we able to confirm it? (laughs) Maybe the answer will be no, but you know, in terms of thinking about endometriosis and maybe excluding some of the other differentials too. So I I think the first thing, as we said, is to think of endometriosis. And if you think of endometriosis, then there are a couple of things that should flow on from that. So the first thing is that I would always ask your patient who's in front of you to keep a diary. And a retrospective sort of recall of what the pain was like is not really suitable for assessing any cyclical changes or any precipitants to that pain. And so a diary is a really good way to go. And most of the endometriosis associations now release their own pain diaries that can be shared. Or if they're not using a pain diary, the million and one menstrual tracking apps will all track pain and will allow you to see whether or not there is a pattern to it. So Pain diary is a great way of charting symptoms, but also a great way for women to take back a little bit of the power over this, to to get a little bit more control around what's actually going on. The second thing is I would offer all women who are presenting with pain or where you're considering endometriosis an abdominal and or a vaginal examination. Now, if you're not comfortable doing a vaginal examination, I absolutely believe that there is no harm in not doing it. Okay, but often you can get some idea that a patient may have endometriosis. So you might find a retrovert or retroflexed uterus, or you may find that there is a lump there or that there is a, a mass there or something that is not normal if you're experienced in doing vaginal examinations. Now, even specialists have real problems picking up endometriosis on an exam. So and not doing it would not be a critical error, but I think you should consider it. And if you've got the experience, I I think that's a very reasonable thing to do. Certainly the extension in assessment is a transvaginal or a transabdominal ultrasound scan. That's now really part of our routine assessment and examination of any woman with endometriosis or pain or with any gynecological condition now. I would do an ultrasound scan on everyone who comes and sees me, just simply because it gives you so much more information. Now, where you have your ultrasound scan done 
is really, really, really important. And that's because you get what you paid for. And I mean that in the nicest possible way. Some clinics have 10-minute appointments where they do a transabdominal scan. They don't have a lot of experience in gynecological ultrasound, which is really a subspecialty in itself. And so you get the type of report that says there's a uterus and two ovaries, and there's really nothing you can do with that. Whereas if you go to a clinic that specializes in gynecological ultrasound scan, and specifically there are a number of clinics now that specialize in endometriosis type of ultrasound scans, you get much more information. They'll talk about the uterus, they'll talk about mobility, they'll give you an idea whether or not there's endometriosis that perhaps involves other areas such as the bowel or the bladder. They'll be able to give you some preview of the patient's likely fertility because they'll be doing an atrial follicle count, they'll be looking at the ovaries. So really that is one of the basic assessments that we would now recommend that every physician should be talking to their patients about when they come and present with pain. And I would normally see most of the patients that come to see me have at least had an ultrasound scan. Now, even if the scan is not great, it is still a very good screening test for large volume disease. And we'll talk about that a little bit more later on, but certainly excluding a big endometrioma, so a collection in the ovary is really part of the assessment of women with endometriosis. And ultrasound scan has a very high sensitivity and specificity for endometriomata or, or ovarian endometriosis. Bloods are less helpful as markers of endometriosis, but all of my team and all the people who've, who've worked with me and under my tutelage or have been my residents know that I always say that whenever you see a female patient of reproductive age, you need to consider pregnancy. And of course, that doesn't necessarily need to be an ultrasound scan, but pregnancy is the important thing not to miss over here if you've got symptoms that don't add up. Beyond that, bloods are really not particularly helpful in terms of assessing what's going on with a patient in terms of the differential from the situation. Yeah, okay. And so moving on from those non-invasive investigations to sort of diagnostic laparoscopy, because this is kind of the gold standard, I guess, that combination of laparoscopy and, and histological confirmation of the endometriosis. So if you have got a woman where you are suspicious and and potentially some of those non-invasive investigations aren't fruitful, do they have to go on to laparoscopy to confirm the diagnosis? Should every woman be receiving this or who should we be referring to consider mm. it? This, of course, is part of the really big problem with this disease, that its diagnosis at the moment still requires an invasive procedure that while it's a simple procedure and has the capacity to, in fact, alter the course of the disease, still requires specialist and endometriosis specialist involvement to get the best outcome, really. And this is one of the really big problems about some of the studies, some of the management plans that we have for endometriosis. No, I don't think everybody who comes to see me with pain needs to have a, a laparoscopy. The indications for laparoscopy really are if you have a patient with pain, for example, if the pain is uncontrolled, 
then that's an indication for a laparoscopy or a referral to see a specialist. If you see infertility with no other cause, that then to me tells me there's probably something going on inside of the pelvis like endometriosis. If there are abnormalities on the examination, so if there is a nodule there, if you've found a fixed retroverted uterus that's painful, or if there are abnormalities on an ultrasound scan, in those situations, we would almost always perform a laparoscopy to A, make the diagnosis, but B, also, it's a therapeutic intervention at the same time. But not everybody should have to have a laparoscopy. And certainly not having laparoscopy shouldn't stop you from having appropriate interventions. So we have struggled with this as an endometriosis community for quite some time. And we've talked about setting up some diagnostic criteria for the non-invasive diagnosis of endometriosis. And we are some way down the track of this. And we're hoping that very soon we'll be able to have an announcement around this. But it certainly focuses on ultrasound criteria such as an endometrioma or ultrasound evidence of pelvic disease and ultrasound and examination findings. So they're the key criteria to making a non-invasive diagnosis of endometriosis. Yeah, okay. I think that's a great framework to be able to, to work with. It's certainly, I think it, it is a frustrating part of it, isn't it, that that we don't have something, mm. there's not a simple blood test or Easy. imaging that, yep. you know, that can just say definitively with a really good sensitivity that yes or no. So it, it is hard when, when we have to move towards a more invasive investigation to actually get that diagnosis, which can be um, treatment as well. It can be therapeutic, but I guess we don't necessarily want to suppose every woman to a surgical intervention no and you know we've looked at multimodal blood tests urine tests to see whether or not there is something that's sensitive and specific enough to allow us to diagnose as women with endometriosis and it's just not there we're not there yet and there's level one evidence now so from meta-analyses and systematic reviews that we do not have a good enough non-invasive diagnosis for endometriosis. We'll keep waiting. <laughs> we'll keep yeah. waiting for you smart people mm. to, <laughs> to mm. find us the answer here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, Nush, we're just getting carried away here. There's so much that we could talk about with this topic and I can see that we're running out of time, but I really don't want to cut us too short. So, you know, listeners, what I'm going to do is we're going to actually stop here and we're going to regather and Anush, let's record another episode and chat about endometriosis management. So listeners, please make sure that you tune back in for our next episode. There's lots more information to cover. Mm-hmm.